The term arcology was coined by the Italian architect Paolo Soleri to refer to a type of architectural design focused on dense, efficient, sustainable housing and living spaces that would allow occupants to live in comfort without using as many resources as they might consume organized in some other fashion. This concept and Soleri's larger body of work has heavily influenced sustainable architecture more broadly even though a true arcology, as envisioned by Soleri, has never been built. He did get started on one, though. An experimental town about 70 miles north of Phoenix, in the state of Arizona, called Arcosanti. But this town has never been completed, and as of today operates primarily as a tourist attraction, run by a non-profit that leads workshops on sustainable concepts developed by Soleri and other architects who have a similar point of view about how we should live. Though he didn't always use the same language to describe what he was doing, the architect, inventor, and futurist Buckminster Fuller was also fond of the concept of building sustainable, enclosed cities as systems that were built from the ground up to be self-reliant and eminently efficient. Fuller is perhaps best known for his geodesic domes, space-frame trusses, and Dymaxion line of homes, cars, and modular buildings but he was also a huge fan of what amounted to arcologies, even going so far as to propose one called the Old Man Rivers City Project as a solution to a housing crisis in East St. Louis, Missouri, back in the 1970s. His proposed plan, which would have been a housing project for the existing 70,000 or so residents that would have also held a maximum of 125,000 people, would have been enclosed in a circular, multi-terraced dome, this dome would have provided each family with 2,500 square feet, which is about 230 square meters, of personal living space, alongside a large amount of communal, shared space, filled with plants and sunshine, optimized for leisurely strolls and various types of social events. Like Soleri, Fuller's approach to sustainable living was not a race to see who could reduce energy usage the most, or to see who could take up the least space. It was about the efficiency of systems and the intentional utility of resources. Most dense urban areas, already by virtue of having a bunch of shared infrastructure, are more efficient in terms of energy, raw materials, and most other things than most rural areas. Which makes sense if you think about it. If you have just a handful of families using a particular road, a particular power line, a particular sewer system, that's less efficient than having hundreds of families use the same road, power line, or sewer system. You have to build the things differently for these two use cases, but as a general rule, adding more families to an established sewer system costs less and uses fewer resources than building a bunch of entirely new sewer systems. It's a bit like the efficiencies of scale when it comes to producing products. Produce more of something, and each unit tends to get cheaper have more families using the same infrastructure, and that infrastructural resource will generally cost you less per family. This way of thinking, the building of sustainable cities and arcologies, is about optimizing that effect. It's about saying, okay, if urban setups already allow people to live more efficiently, to use fewer resources overall, how might we increase the potency of that effect? How might we further reduce an individual's footprint in terms of consumption, but also environmental harm 
while simultaneously making their home a pleasant place to live. Not just more efficient, but actually a nicer option than what already exists elsewhere. To Fuller, this way of thinking was critical, in part because of what was happening in the world around him, the periodic resource shortages that plagued his post-World War II international system, for instance, but also because of what he thought might happen in the future, where we might need to go, where we might want to go, and how things might evolve where we are currently, centuries onward. Fuller did not coin the term Spaceship Earth, but he was one of the key popularizers of that term and the concept that it represents. The idea is that the planet, our planet, Earth, is a closed ecology. Now, it's a big one, certainly, but it's really no different from the closed systems that he and other thinkers like Soleri had been trying to build in their buildings and other structures. There are finite resources, and our resource cycles have knowable inputs and outputs, and learnable flows that we can figure out how to measure and understand and potentially, someday, control, or at least control for, in the way that we think and build. If you live on a spaceship that is cruising through the void of space, it's important that you don't consume more than you need, because it's possible for the crew to starve, the water to run dry, your batteries to empty, all of which would put an end to that particular voyage. Spaceship Earth posits that our planet is like that human-made spaceship, and that it's just as possible to drain the batteries, gobble up the food, and deplete our drinkable water stores. And it's perhaps even more likely in this planet-sized spaceship that we are in, because the scale of this vessel that we are on means that it's less likely that we will immediately, or perhaps ever, see the direct consequences of our individual actions. Thus, not necessarily connecting our hogging of resources, our careless actions, and our optimizing for other outcomes with the negative consequences that follow those actions. What I want to talk about today is a key issue for those of us living on Spaceship Earth that connects with an array of other issues, all of which many of us are fortunate to not have to think about on a regular basis, but which in the very near future we may need to begin worrying over as the consequences of our actions and a multitude of shifts beyond our control begin to fall into place around us. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. A drought is a period of water shortage within a particular region, though the specifics of what shortage means and how large a region we're talking about varies from drought to drought. Broadly, though, there are three main, often interconnected, types of drought. A meteorological drought is what happens when there's less than average rain, snow, and other types of precipitation in a given area. An agricultural drought is based less on typical rainfall in a region and more on how well local crops are being kept hydrated, meaning it could happen because there's a lot less rain than usual as a consequence of a meteorological drought, or it could happen because of a flaw in the local agricultural technique being applied, or because that agricultural infrastructure is too much for the region's resources to sustain. Too many crops, not enough reliable water resources. A hydrological drought is what happens when lakes, aquifers, and other water reservoirs, the places where excess water goes, above and below ground, after rainfall and other types of precipitation, have been depleted. 
So when the human-made water system in a region is insufficient to provide the water necessary for that region, either because of a meteorological drought or because of technological, managerial, or maintenance-related flaws in the system, you end up with a hydrological drought. Now up front, it's important to establish that droughts are a natural, even common, in some areas at least, climate and weather-related event. If there were no humans on the planet, there would still be droughts. They are kind of like forest fires in that regard. Entire ecologies have evolved around periodic or regular droughts, which arrive seasonally, or every few years, or at times for decades-long stretches, at which point the plants and animals change their habits or succumb to the changes, dying off to be replaced by something else. And as sad as those die-offs can be, for those of us who prefer a certain type of ecology over a more desert-like version of the same, these processes can be necessary to the macro-level life cycle of these regions. And even when that's not the case, and increased instances of drought are not long-term beneficial to the local ecology, according to our standards for beneficial at least, it's still a natural thing that would happen even in a world completely unaltered by human activity amplified climate change. That said, like forest fires, droughts are happening more regularly, scaling up more rapidly, and occurring in areas that are not typically prone to droughts. And much of this shift can be directly or indirectly attributed to the pace and vigor with which the human species has grown and consumed, and come up with interesting ways to change our planetary ecosystem and atmospheric composition. Computer modeling has grown powerful enough that we are now able to make this type of assertion with a fair amount of certainty. We can point at a specific climate-related event, like a drought, and say, this drought is about 30% more powerful than it would have been otherwise due to human-related factors. Which is generally not pleasant to hear, but it's also quite valuable, I think. We can say this because we've been able to model how the global climate would look today had we not industrialized at the pace that we have with all the accompanying atmospheric byproducts of that industrialization. Now, I think it's fair to say that the consequences of our technological growth have been a mixed bag, and that I personally am thrilled to live in an era in which the internet and modern medicine and countless different types of cuisines are available around the world to a huge and growing portion of our species. At the same time, though, an awareness of the consequences of these innovations allows us to do the math more consciously and conscientiously as we consider the consequences of such growth and progress. I love that I can get a good curry pretty much anywhere on the planet, but is that globalization-driven power worth the consequences? The downsides of all that shipping, all that shifting of resources, the agricultural monocultures, the historical horrors at times that have eventually led to good things, but which were powered by incredibly inhumane things. That's for each of us to determine for ourselves, I think. But I believe we're almost certainly better off for knowing for being aware of the repercussions of our actions and priorities, so that even if we don't change what we're doing, we will be aware of the true cost of things that we enjoy, and will probably be more capable of countering the downsides of our globally available curries and internet infrastructure and advanced medicines. That may seem like a bit of a digression from the topic of droughts, but in reality, it's all connected. The global climate is a sprawling system made up of countless smaller regional systems, and these systems are defined by so many variables that even our most sophisticated models are almost certainly missing the majority of what we need to be tracking to have a truly accurate indication 
of how things are and where they're going next. That means if we're only watching rainfall and average temperatures, we're missing most of the story. The tale of drought is not just a story of weather, it's a story of how and where we build our cities, how we manage scarce resources, how we tweak or fail to tweak our environment, and how we manage, maintain, and evolve the relationship between the human pieces of regional ecosystems and all the other pieces, from plants and animals to landscape to elemental resources, like water and air. While looking at the big picture here, though, I don't want to overlook the on-the-ground lived experiences of people who suffer through droughts around the world. Even moderately impactful short-term droughts that last mere weeks can have immensely deleterious effects on a region, leading to drops in food production, to hunger, famine, and malnutrition, to the erosion and depletion of topsoil, the creation of dust bowls, Areas that become so vacant of soil nutrition and so dry that the ground turns to dust. The long-term or even permanent damage to habitats for plants and animals, which of course affects us as well, since so many of these plants and animals are vital to growing food, controlling pest populations, keeping the air clean, and so on. There are increases in dehydration, decreases in energy harvested from dams. Everything becomes more expensive because of the costs associated with shipping in supplies of water rather than having local water available to use, both for drinking and for industrial use cases. There are more wildfires, there's a higher rate of certain types of disease due to the change-up in how water is acquired and distributed and where that water comes from. And there's a far higher likelihood of mass migration, of local conflict, and potentially of non-local unrest resulting from cascades of other issues that can arise from drought-afflicted regions. If there's a drought in even a very small area, and shipping within that region slows down just a little, that is an example of a drought's influence rippling outward to negatively impact the fortunes of nearby regions as well. The same is true on the other end of the negative impact spectrum. If thousands of millions of people are forced to leave their homes, not because they want to, or because they can even really afford to, but because they literally cannot stay where they once lived because there's no water. That drought-related groundwork laid. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Ars Technica, and it's entitled, In the U.S., Wells Being Drilled Ever Deeper as Groundwater Vanishes. To understand this piece, it's important to understand the difference between surface water and groundwater. Surface water is the water that is contained on land. So water that is stored in lakes, wetlands, rivers, ponds, that's all surface water. Groundwater, in contrast, is water that exists underground, in caves, in pores within soil, tucked away and frozen within permafrost, or amongst and around deep geothermal and oil formations. Surface water is often replenished from groundwater stores by pumping water from down below up to the surface, to be used on fields or in swimming pools, or to top up above-ground aquifers, like lakes or water towers. Similarly, but in reverse, groundwater is replenished by surface water that seeps down into the soil after it rains, or that makes its slow way down through cracks along the bottom of a stream or lake bed, slowly refilling the available space below ground. Underground, the topmost portion of the water level is often referred to as the water table. Beneath the water table line, essentially all of the soil pores and accessible spaces are filled to capacity with water, 
and thus any more water added will have nowhere to go but up. In some cases, blending into surface water aquifers, or in other cases, adding depth to wetlands and springs, which are above ground features where the water table has popped up to the surface, creating what amounts to its own overflow aquifer. So the water table is the topmost portion of a region's groundwater level, and the freshwater on the surface of the planet is called surface water. These two layers intersect and blend, with water moving between them constantly. And these two layers are where essentially all of the non-saline, meaning non-salt, water resources on the planet exist, except for the water contained above the planet in the air, often called atmospheric water, which sometimes manifests as clouds, fog, or other types of aerosol or droplet-based water. And sometimes it just sits there, Invisible to the naked eye, just another part of the larger atmospheric chemical blend. When we want to access groundwater rather than surface water, which we often do because it's often less polluted and more consistently available, we dig wells, which are basically just holes in the ground that allow us to use anything from buckets to sophisticated pump-powered pipes to suck subsurface water up into our local water systems, either going directly to people who pull up the water to take into their homes, or into above-ground aquifers, from which the water is then distributed. Wells are a technology that we have been utilizing as a species for at least 7,000 years, indicating just how handy it can be to have access to generally more abundant, more consistent, cleaner water than might be available on the surface. And this is especially true in regions that have hot, dry climates, but we've got archaeological evidence of wells having been dug by our ancestors from around the world, indicating that this was a solution that was probably arrived at many times in isolation, as well as a clever notion that was almost certainly spread by trade and migration. Salt water, which is mostly contained in oceans and seas, but also periodically found in other bodies of water, like Utah's Great Salt Lake and the Dead Sea, which is bordered by Jordan, Israel, and the West Bank, has an average salinity, on average, an average saltiness of about 3.5%, which means there's about 35 grams of dissolved salt, sodium, and chloride ions in every kilogram of seawater. This saltiness makes the water denser, increases its freezing point, and makes it a lot less desirable than fresh water for humans. Because although we can get away with drinking a small amount of salt water, more than a tiny bit actually poisons us and can lead to death due to our inability to process all of that salt. Desalination, removing the salt from salt water through various clever means, is a thing, but it's also a lot less efficient and way more costly than just having drinkable, non-salty water available to begin with. Hence, groundwater and freshwater are far more prized than the comparably massive, abundant quantities of salt water that cover the majority of the planet. The ocean is vast and wonderful for many reasons, but as a source of drinking water, it's generally far less valuable than even a tiny, unimpressive pond filled with relatively clean water. Brackish water is a term applied to water that is salty, but not as salty as the water in most oceans. Instead of 3.5% salinity, brackish water has somewhere between 0.05 and 3% salinity. So there's enough salt dissolved in this type of water that it's not pure, clean, potable, meaning drinkable, water but it's not so salty that it has the same compositional changes or deadliness as true 3.5% salt water. 
Interestingly, part of what defines brackishness in water is its variability. Such water is often found where salt water meets fresh water, and thus the saltiness in a particular sea or swamp or estuary can vary greatly over the course of a day or even moment to moment based on the tide, the flow of water from a nearby river, or some other combination of variables. So while salt water is generally somewhere around 3.5% salt and thus undrinkable in any sustainable sense, brackish water is often a rapidly changing thing. Far less desirable than fresh water because you cannot be sure that it's okay to drink, but also at times borderline drinkable, depending on the circumstances in which it exists. Fresh water, on the other hand, is drinkable, or at least it's drinkable if it's clean, which it may not be, naturally. So it's drinkable in that it's not so salty that it will kill us, but perhaps undrinkable at times in that it could be polluted or filled with bacteria or something along those lines. But in general, this often more drinkable category of water is contained in lakes and rivers, it's stored in ice sheets and glaciers, it flows through underground channels and fills subsurface caves. But it's also prone to moving, to shifting from place to place, not just on land but also through the water cycle, which involves water evaporating into the atmosphere and then returning back to Earth as rain, snow, and other types of precipitation. This water cycle cleans the water, leaving pollutants and such behind as it rises up into the sky before falling back down to Earth. There are circumstances in which pollution can diminish that drinkability for periods of time, leading to things like acid rain or unfortunate quantities of particulates in the water as it falls, rendering it relatively undrinkable until the air clears and the toxins dissipate. Despite those caveats, though, the water cycle makes fresh water on the planet a renewable resource. When the aquifers run dry, they can, with time, be refilled by natural processes. Which is pretty great, water being so essential to the functioning of society, not to mention the human body. Renewable does not mean infinite, however. And this is the hard problem we run up against, as our populations grow and resource requirements increase. Yes, given enough time, our stockpiles tend to replenish with potable water, but the replenishment is imbalanced, with some areas receiving more than others, and there isn't a good, inexpensive way to speed it up, to get more clean water from this process, or to share the wealth and coax the cycle to deposit more fresh water in places that don't receive it in abundance naturally. That means if we grow an area to a scale that cannot be sustained by local water cycle realities, we're left scrambling to figure out how to make up that difference. And in the meantime, the local ecology suffers, the soil suffers, many people could suffer, all because we are overusing a renewable but not unlimited resource. Our consumption has overshot our production. This piece from Ars Technica is about a trend that we are seeing in the United States, where individuals and groups, communities and cities, are digging their wells increasingly deep so they can tap into sub-subsurface groundwater resources as the mere subsurface resources are diminishing. The water table is dropping as more and more wells tap into these shared aquifers. This trend makes sense if you think about the aforementioned limited resource reality. If the local stockpile of water only renews at a finite rate, why not dig deeper, increasing the overall quantity of available water so that your resource requirement scaling can continue to churn onward, unhindered, at least for a while? The downsides of this approach, though, 
are not negligible. It's more expensive to dig deeper, first of all. The deeper you go, the more difficult it is to safely dig and reinforce the well itself, and the more expensive it is to operate that well. Pressure is required to pump the water upward, and the more pipe you've got, the more vertical distance that must be traversed for that water to reach the surface, the more energy you must expend to make it happen. It's also, in general, more likely that water from deeper down in the earth will require some kind of processing compared to water derived from sources that are closer to the surface. One of the benefits of groundwater over surface water is that it's generally less likely to contain pollutants that are found on the surface of the planet, due to it essentially falling from the sky into pockets of safety underneath all of that pollution. That benefit largely disappears, though, as you go deeper, as it's more likely that deep water reserves will be chemically integrated with some kind of mineral or other substance, oil or gas, for instance. Thus, the cost benefits of deep well groundwater are less economically viable, because it can actually be less expensive to just filter polluted or salt water to derive potable water, compared to first pumping impure water up to the surface before doing the same. Finally, these deep water reserves are also a lot less dependable in terms of the quantity of water they contain and the regularity with which they're refilled. Groundwater aquifers are often refilled by surface water that slowly trickles down, and these deeper aquifers are the same, except that it can take far, far longer for that water to reach those depths, if it gets there at all. It's possible that it can be pumped out by wells before it has a chance to get that deep, which means the depth of these wells can allow for the use of the water that's already there, but the stockpiles in some regions may seldom or even never be replenished after that. The research paper at the center of this piece in Ars Technica, which was published in the science journal Nature in mid-2019, suggests that although it's probably good that we know how to dig deeper wells as a short-term solution, they are almost certainly just that. They are not a long-term solution. And in fact, the preponderance of deep wells might be an indication that we lack true, reliable, viable long-term solutions. Because if we had better ones, chances are we'd be investing in those instead. The on-the-ground reality in places like Arizona and New Mexico, though, is that water supplies, above ground and below, are diminishing quickly, and the water-thirsty people, infrastructure, and industries that live and that we have built in these areas require more than is naturally produced by the local water cycles. And this is not a one-state or one-country issue. This is happening around the world and pretty much continuously even in regions and during seasons in which drought has traditionally been a rarity. We are seeing small and large-scale freshwater shortages that are causing untold damage to the local environment and to the human societies that live within those environments. On the day I'm recording this, there's a major drought taking place in Chennai, a capital city with over 8.5 million residents in India, from a piece about this drought in Time magazine, quote, Chennai was once rich in lakes and wetlands, but rapid urbanization has diminished these sources. Millions of city residents now line up daily in sweltering heat to collect small rations of water. Some people have turned to open defecation as a way to reduce water usage, or are reusing dirty water for cooking and cleaning. According to an Indian government think tank, the countrywide drought has left 600 million people dealing with high to extreme water shortages. Chennai joins the long list of cities around the world facing such emergencies, which have been made more likely by the unpredictable weather patterns caused by climate change. Cape Town, Mexico City, 
and Sao Paulo have also faced a day zero in recent years, end quote. That day zero term referenced in the piece is the day when local piped water resources are expected to run dry in a city. So not a shortage, a complete lack of water within the local infrastructure. And everyone from individual human beings to manufacturers requiring water for industrial processes would become reliant on water brought in on trains and trucks and in plastic bottles for 100% of their water consumption. Also in the news, there's a story about a drought that is constricting rice production in Thailand. Low water levels caused by drought are reducing trade on the Rhine River, a key shipping lane in Europe, because ships can't as easily traverse it when it's shallower and skinnier due to lack of water. There are concerns that the same drought that's shrinking the Rhine will cause eastern German cities to run out of water, will cause them to face their own day zero situation while Paris has had to lower its corn production expectations for the season due to drought conditions that have been amplified by a European heat wave that just recently passed through. Wells have run dry in parts of Indonesia. New Delhi is looking to apply new water use fees, even on agricultural interests, as their supplies dwindle and the weather becomes less predictable locally and in over 20 other Indian cities. And countries in the Horn of Africa, particularly Somalia, Ethiopia, and northern Kenya, have had far less rainfall than usual in 2019, leading to droughts throughout the region, which in turn have created patches of localized famine that some experts worry will expand region-wide if drought conditions do not diminish soon. These sorts of concerns are warranted. Droughts often trigger and amplify other issues. The lack of water kills crops, which leads to hunger, but it also reduces trade income for the year. The lack of clean water can lead to widespread heat and disease-related conditions that stress a region's health services and resources, and local ecosystems and environmental resources, like rich soil and abundant pollinators, can die off and be washed away. The drought weakening the soil and killing off the plants that held the soil in place, so that when rainfall finally does return, it's as much a blessing as a curse. The region finally has some water, but the land-based structures that were weakened during the drought may be washed away into a nearby river or ocean, and that alongside the floods and mudslides. One of the most beneficial things we could do for ourselves in terms of drought reduction, but also to address some of the interconnected issues that amplify the negative effects of drought, is to reduce our consumption of energy, food, and other resources. This would almost certainly, at least in the short term, mean adjusting our expectations of what it means to live a good, happy, successful life. A lot of what we might call modern, western, middle-class consumption habits were created in the wake of World War II, in large part to sell the abundant extra things that we could suddenly make that we'd be losing money on if we could not continue to produce and sell them on scale. We could benefit from massive efficiencies if we could keep our wartime manufacturing capabilities spun up and running at full capacity. But we would need to convince people that they needed all that stuff that we were churning out of those factories and other facilities. Marketing played a huge role in accomplishing that, changing the cultural conversation about what a good life looked like, eventually leading to where we are today, a world in which consumption is a huge part of how we define ourselves, the goals we set, and the way we imagine both negative and positive outcomes. Will I have more or less stuff has become a sort of shorthand for will I be doing better or worse than I am now in the future. 
If we can tweak that dynamic, still aiming for happiness and fulfillment, but versions of those things not predicated on consumption, I suspect our economy would recalibrate in kind, leading to overall less resource reliance and easing some of the infrastructural strain our societies around the world are facing. Now, this would, of course, necessarily be a longer-term effort and would require a great deal of cultural shift alongside economic and regulatory incentives, none of which is guaranteed or even particularly likely based on the current trajectories our social and economic structures seem to be on. More tactically, then, we may want to invest in shorter-term solutions that could, with time, scale into something large-scale and forward-thinking. Water desalinization plants, for instance, which are already popular around the world, could help lessen the strain and drain on natural portions of the cycle, so that ideally, at least, more of those natural processes can be left untouched so they can supply plants and animals and landscapes with the hydration that they require to stay healthy and intact. There are many methods of desalinating water already in use, including reverse osmosis, electrodialysis, multi-stage flash distillation, multiple effect distillation, vapor compression desalination, solar humidification, and membrane distillation, among others. Whatever specific method is applied, though, these are all means of converting salty, mineral-dense water into a potable, drinkable form. At the moment, Most of these methods require a far larger power investment than is utilized by comparable systems that make use of ground or surface water resources. But as these technologies iterate, and as new methods become available, it's thinkable that we could extract ourselves from a reliance on natural water cycles almost entirely, diminishing the potential for human-instigated drought, but also the possibility that we will suffer as a consequence of local, natural, cyclical droughts that the flora and fauna might be equipped to deal with, but which we, currently at least, are not. The efficiency and effectiveness of many of these technologies has been improving over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries, and the shift from non-sustainable and polluting sources of energy to clean, renewable energy sources is almost certainly part of the equation here. Some of the newer desalination plants, in fact have their own built-in solar farms or other energy creation systems, making them mostly or entirely self-sustaining sources of clean water, their only real input being the cost of maintenance and the salty seawater that they desalinate, turning it into clean water. We're also seeing smaller, more modular versions of these types of plants being deployed as village or town-scale solar-powered desalination vehicles or carts, These portable units can be easily moved into a drought-susceptible region, allowing locals to pour in salty water to get clean water out the other end. Not on a scale that would be impressive to a city, but instead on a scale that would serve a village or town until the threat passes. And the portability and lower maintenance requirements on such a setup is key, as it means these resources could be moved around based on which regions require them week-to-week or even day-to-day. Portable desalination resources of this kind could become viable solutions to local, near-future, fast-moving drought issues, as they are relatively inexpensive, incredibly portable and modular, and could even conceivably be open-sourced, allowing folks around the world to create their own homemade versions from scratch, and allowing small businesses to produce and ship ready-made kits and templates or materials that would allow more of them to be built where they're needed, when they're needed, incredibly rapidly and inexpensively. 
At the core of anything we do within this field of inquiry, though, is the necessary realization that wherever we might live on the planet, however we might live, and however we might see the world, we are connected to each other by the cycles and systems that make up our shared global ecosystem. We can, at times, ameliorate some of the issues that arise from this interconnectedness by carving the world up into smaller and smaller pieces and handling the seemingly isolated issues that arise on a particular patch of land at a particular moment in time, as if it exists in isolation. It helps, I think, to consider concepts like arcologies, even as we implement known solutions like utilizing better insulation in our homes and building with local materials whenever possible. It helps to think about ourselves as passengers and crew of a spaceship Earth, even as we figure out ways to provide potable water to people in need, momentarily or chronically, due to the whims of nature or the management of bureaucracy. And at a certain point, I think it's prudent that we trace the many variables that we're learning about, that we're watching so carefully, back to their source. That we do our best to understand the hows and whys, and how these pieces fit together, which acts influence which variables, and what we might do to prepare ourselves for all of our potential futures. And that will probably require that we not just allow ourselves to see this interconnectedness, the systems of which we're all a part, but that we become scholars of these realities, and potentially someday to maybe even take the reins on some of them, to learn to be not just students, but stewards of them, that we understand how they work and fit together well enough that we can tweak them if it proves necessary to do so. Achieving the wisdom required to utilize that knowledge appropriately. Deciding how and when and if to make use of it along the way. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. And the subtitle of this book is How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. And that subtitle is a pretty big claim, I think, but it is an interesting subject that this book covers. I actually went into this book blind. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was that it was recommended to me by somebody who I tend to trust on such things. And it turns out that the topic of this book is essentially shortcutting flow. It's achieving different states of mind through various mechanisms to more purposefully and consistently tap into that flow state that we can achieve in which we are just ultra-focused and ultra-effective and ultra-efficient at various things that we might do while in that state. And it's fascinating to see how these different fields, how these different thinkers are trying to apply this state, but also the ways in which they try to trigger it. So there's the triggering mechanism above and beyond the traditional types of methods used to achieve flow that require years and years and years of practice to achieve, and even then it's not necessarily a given thing. So the way that they're trying to achieve flow is fascinating, but also the problems that they're trying to solve, the applications that they have, like, for instance, sending Navy SEALs into battle and having them work with each other in a type of flow state. There are elements of this that are just incredibly interesting, and there are elements that might leave you a little bit concerned or even skeptical about the entire endeavor. But regardless of your response to an individual use case or argument, I think the overall topic tends to be fairly interesting, and even more so because it does connect with so many different fields and ways of looking at this concept. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. 
You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. 